Hey everyone, welcome to the Social Leader Podcast, episode 10. Our goal on this podcast is to help you learn to lead with greater social impact. I'm Father Justin Matthews. Hey, real quick, before we begin today's episode, I wanna let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City, working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about Reconciliation Services programs and even support our work at rs3101.org. Today's show is sponsored by Thelma's Kitchen, Kansas City's first donate what you can restaurant, open for lunch again starting in June. Lastly, if you like today's show, go visit thesocialleader.org where you can sign up to find out more about a new e-course called Social Leader Essentials launching very soon. Okay, now on with our show. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, our lives have been jarringly shifted into the digital world. However, from rural areas where broadband doesn't exist to poor urban areas, where it's unaffordable, millions are going without internet access just when they need it the most. We use the internet to learn, to work, to communicate, to socialize. However, some groups are virtually digitally excluded. For some, the adaptation to digital life and work wasn't that difficult, but for a large number of Americans, broadband connectivity simply isn't available or it's just not affordable. The problems known as the digital divide, and it's one that's dogged lawmakers and policymakers for years. Many, like the FCC commissioner, said that the coronavirus crisis is exposing the hard truths about the scope of the digital divide. Well, today I'm talking with Tom Esselman, the CEO of Connecting for Good about digital inclusion and social leadership. Connecting for Good is an organization that's linking access and opportunities for digital skills training, hardware, and connectivity for people of all ages. So formerly, Tom was an executive at Hallmark Cards for 22 years, where he led the development of technology-enhanced products. Actually, one of my favorite things, including those little cards that sing to you or that you can record on. It's pretty cool. So welcome, Tom, to the Social Leader Podcast. Thanks, Father Justin. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Well, I want to dive right into our questions and talk a little bit about social leadership as we move on. So uh, first and foremost, you know, the, the reality is that uh, we need to kind of begin by clarifying some terminology. So what do you mean when you talk about digital inclusion and why is connectivity so elusive? for so many people? I think the term, the digital divide, is probably the most commonly used to talk about the gap between those who have access to technology and those who don't. Digital inclusion, we're trying to pitch as a more positive term and a more comprehensive term. And it basically means uh, five things, um, access to a, a computer device that is affordable enough that you can own, access to uh, uh, internet connectivity. Um, the third thing is the skills, digital literacy skills, to be able to use something beyond just a 
cell phone. Um, and then there's two other aspects of it. One is online content, the availability of, of content that is for productive use. Uh, and then the fifth is IT support, because invariably, uh, when you do get a computer and, and Wi-Fi and you learn how to use computers, uh, you know, we're all subject to needing help from time to time. So there's literally a National Digital Inclusion Alliance based in Columbus, Ohio, and it has defined digital inclusion as including those five things. And I know you've been very involved, not just here in the region around Kansas City, but also nationally, and you've spoken all over and you've been involved in you know, lobbying and policy. So I, we want to really get into this, but let, let me back up and say that, you know, even if households officially have a device with access to the internet, the reality is during COVID that it's, it's really highlighted during this lockdown that we have to be more careful, I think, with our definition of what an internet connection really is or what kind of devices are really helping us, you know, when we're home. Because I was thinking about it, you know, maybe you've got a cell phone, maybe you've got the ability to get on and, you know, watch a movie or surf the web or something like that. But, you know, it's very, it's not the right device, let's say, for writing an essay or, or doing your homework if you're a kid uh, who's doing school from home. So how, you know, how important is it to get the actual hardware to families or to individuals, even if they have access? Well, I mean, we've we've known this for years, and Connecting for Good, by the way, is eight years old. Uh, and but but what we've learned from uh, just the last two and a half months during the COVID nineteen crisis is really been more of a reinforcement of of what we've we've known all along, and that is this: um, first and foremost, the most uh, a kind of uh, urgent need that that came kind of boiling to the surface was when schools were closed for spring break and then they realized they weren't coming back from spring break. And um, families that have their kids staying at home but also being required to do schoolwork, that put a whole new level of urgency to the parents who weren't equipped at home with anything more than a cell phone. Even if the kids had a tablet or a laptop that they were given from school, if they didn't have a Wi-Fi connection at home, that was gonna put a, a lot of extra stress on the parents who were now tasked with making sure that their kids actually kept up with their schoolwork, even though they weren't physically in school. Um, and to put a finer point on it, Father Justin, we learned, and it was actually during my days back at Hallmark that I got a chance to spend some time with Microsoft and their research group. And one of the studies they looked at was the difference between how people interact with mobile devices versus devices that have what's called a situated display. And so whenever you can have a home computer system or a desktop, as they're called, that's located in one spot in your home, much the way a dishwasher or a toaster is always in the same place in your home. It promotes much more productive use um, and you, you, you don't have as many tendencies to drop the device or misplace the device or uh, otherwise, you know, put it out of use. So we've really seen a difference by making available to families during the crisis to make sure that even though they have a cell phone with uh, 
the capability of, of even some people who are good at doing some things on a cell phone. We really push getting a desktop or a laptop that can be plugged in and situated in your home. And it has really enhanced the productivity of the whole family. Yeah, you know, you brought up something I'd never thought of, which is, I guess I would have assumed that the more mobile the device is, the more it could be used. But you're actually saying that some sort of stability or location in the home is, is actually what leads to greater adoption or, or how is that working? Well, I mean, if, what we're seeing here is the greater society becoming more acutely aware of the impact of the digital divide. Um, in other words, most of us have grown up taking for granted that um, we can access the internet either by sitting down at a desk or by walking around with a mobile device. But the fact that we've had access to both has made us that much more productive. But you don't stop to think when the only access you've ever had the capability of using is mobile, once you sit yourself down in a stable environment, it's, it, you have no way of knowing until it happens how much more it can stimulate your focus and your ability to be more productive. Um, and so we try to keep our thoughts on the silver lining of this crisis. And if more people in the community who have grown up with digital access can recognize how important it is to bolster families who have only had one or the other, so you have a more complete set of tools, that's what ultimately helps people feel like they're part of the digital age. Um, and unless you've been without one or the other, you would have no way of knowing that. Mm. You know, I think about educators, you know, because they've been scrambling to move instruction online. And the joint, uh, the Senate Joint Economic Committee, I read, said that uh, there's this so-called homework gap that's affecting roughly 12 million children across the country. According to some studies, um, they've also shown that low-income students, students of color, are most often those who lack broadband access, especially at home. So what can be done to overcome these digital inequities? Well, it's, uh, we, of course, have been working on it for eight years, and we've finally seen a glimpse of the possibility um, that at some point we could start thinking about Internet at home the same way we think about electricity or running water. Um, because I think, Father Justin, until we reach that point, um, we're going to always be beset with the long-term reinforcing notions that if I'm, uh, if I'm generationally poor, I will have only access to what I can get through a, a government assistance phone or you know any subsidies I might get to pay for my communications. I will, I will use it for a cell phone before I would use it for a, a a home cable or a home internet system. And so if we can remove that barrier from the lives of the, the neediest in our community, I think it will start to promote this, the back end, which is what I was talking about, a more productive sense that I can, I can actually be a digital citizen. Um, so so we're, we're doing our work day in and day out. Yep, you know, just to get people computers and 
get people solutions to internet and little transactional things. But what we're really pushing for as an organization and why we stay connected to national issues is to use what we're learning as really acute evidence of how much our society could be impacted when people who will go into a, an apartment or a home to live in, that they don't have to think twice about whether they're going to have internet or not, um, that it's just part of what you have the same way you would have electricity and running water. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. You know, if you think about particularly right now during COVID, you know, people are ordering from Grubhub and Uber Eat, you know, because they're afraid of going to the grocery store. And if if you don't have internet access and the devices, and if you don't uh, think of the internet in today's day and age like a utility, um, not having access to the device and the internet's really only a part of digital inclusion. And I love how you talk about the internet being so necessary that it's it's a utility. It's like water or public transit. So, but what are the other barriers? Uh, that can help us understand digital inclusion and digital exclusion? What, what are some of those other barriers? Well, uh, I, I know I'm going to try and explain it as succinctly as possible, but um, what we've experienced connecting for good in our eight short years um, has showcased kind of an evolution of learning about all these different barriers. And I'll try to explain. When it started out eight years ago, it was all about one thing, access to the internet. What prompted it was Google Fiber had the world's fastest, highest quality internet, and they picked Kansas City as the first city to, to come and introduce it. And right away, that was the birth of Connecting for Good. We started thinking about all the families who either weren't gonna be able to afford it or otherwise would view it as some kind of a luxury item. And so, so we focused on what are the things to get people their own uh, affordable internet. And interestingly, along the way, as Google Fiber was going into housing authority complex and starting to offer it for free mm. to low-income communities, in some cases, only 70 or 80% of the residents chose to sign up for it. Well, well, why would that be? I mean, if somebody's going to offer you free broadband, even if it's five megabit download or something, which I think is what the free service was from Google, at least at the time, why why would somebody not want it? And then the other question I have is, you know, were landlords n not interested in bringing it into their buildings or help? I, I know I'm clergy, but I'm kind of a layman when it comes to this. <laughs> so help illumine some of that for me. Why wouldn't you want it? Yeah, and, and this is where the, the social venturing experience and perspective really helps is because mm. there are a lot of deeply embedded economic structures that dictate the way internet has been provided. And, um, and also along with that is the marketing tools. I mean, Google was one of the world's largest companies. And if you're uh, a low income transient individual or household, you're not going to feel comfortable giving your personal private information to the largest company in the world, particularly if you've grown up without understanding technology. We would go to sign up events and, and some residents would say, oh, I, I'm worried about that Wi-Fi access point that they're going to put for free in my apartment, that it has a camera in it. 
and that they're, they're just using this as a way to spy on me. But and, but are but are millennials though in those low income communities and Gen Xers are are they saying that too? I mean, I always hear about you know the, the younger kids being you know digitally literate from the time they you know they're leaving the hospital. But are you saying you found people of all ages were sort of digitally illiterate if they didn't grow up with it? Now you bring up a good point. I mean, a lot of, a lot of those types of comments that I shared with you came from older adults who didn't understand technology, but their teenage kids and working age adults also have trust issues when it comes to okay. working with big companies. So okay. it is a matter of trust. It's a matter of, of kind of uh, having empathy with those that you're serving. And, um, and we found that uh, to answer the question about what other factors are keeping people from being connected, I mean, you know, landlords don't want to get stuck in a contract um, where they have residents who they don't know if they're going to stay in their lease from month to month. And they're, you know, they're worried about their own trust factors with the companies that they sign up for. So, so to, to get, to boil it down to how Connecting for Good has dealt with this and where we're moving forward is um, we have to make sure that we're treating everybody in the community that has been suffering from this digital divide, you know, not as a statistic or as a number, but I mean, these are human beings and these are families and they have issues they're trying to deal with. And, and so our efforts to try to close the digital divide and provide those five components of digital inclusion is about, is about reaching out and collaborating and working with groups that can fundamentally have a level of trust with the people that we're trying to help so that they can see the benefit without feeling like they're being coerced into it because it's a commercial transaction. Well, um, when you talk about trust, that's, you know, that's something that at Reconciliation Services, we can really resonate with. You know, we run a counseling and trauma therapy program. And one of the reasons that people don't go get counseling, even though they've been witnessed a gunfire or been through all sorts of traumas is that there's historic abuses, there's historic exclusion, racial and economic, and, the, and that trust isn't there. You know, I want to uh, tell everybody who's listening that uh, I'd love for you to comment if you're watching us live on Facebook or another platform. Uh, definitely share your comments, share your experiences with the digital divide and digital inclusion, or if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, share your thoughts and your comments. Um, Tom, you mentioned a word that's uh, one of my favorites, and you talked about social venturing. So Connecting for Good recently announced, I think right before COVID, that uh, there was going to be a merger with the Surplus Exchange, which is a longtime digital literacy advocate and computer recycling organization in Kansas City. So talk about this merger. Why was this merger important for the future of Connecting for Good? And how does it reposition Connecting for Good as a nonprofit organization? Well, when I came to Connecting for Good, it was four years ago. So four years after we were founded. And the earlier premise of just building Wi-Fi networks and computer labs to help low-income communities get access to the internet, that there wasn't any financial sustainability in that. Mm. Um, and so, so part of my goal, of course, coming from a Hallmark background, I, I think in business terms, but I also think about the emotional connection between people. And so we saw that when we were providing digital literacy training and helping people get connected to the internet, um, if they didn't have a computer 
we were getting donations of computers and we were doing our best, but it was always a hit or miss. The, sur the surplus exchange had a business that involved positioning itself as an IT service company. They got certified for data privacy and data security when it comes to wiping hard drives and things like that. There are major concerns for businesses who donate computers. And over the years, the board of directors who ran Surplus Exchange had kind of exhausted their ability to kind of lead the organization after they had some management um, turnover. And they asked Connecting for Good if we would be willing to take on the business. And that's a perfect so, partnership for you guys. I it's mean, wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. like tailor made for you. It couldn't have been better. I mean, we we had a steep learning curve to uh, kind of understand how we could become vertically integrated because essentially that's what we are now. We we operate a, a nearly seventy thousand square foot warehouse in the West Bottoms. Wow. We've we've had to clean it up. We've had to go through the process of uh, understanding and getting set up for certification standards for data privacy and security with, with regard to the, uh, data destruction. And now we're positioning ourselves to the business community as an IT service company that can help you dispose of your old IT assets and where for-profit recyclers charge a fee and they're just trying to see how they can um, maximize their profit, a nonprofit recycler will always look to focus on what could be reused. So if there's desktop and laptop computers that we pick up, we won't charge you a fee, and you as a business will get the double benefit of knowing that we're helping the community by refurbishing and redistributing those computers back out into the low-income community. Well, so, what I love about that is it's also kind of pushing Connecting for Good to the forefront uh, forefront of sort of green tech in a way. I mean, you guys are you guys are providing yeah. not just an awesome service and sustainability for the organization, but there's a lot of junk that gets just thrown away that has mercury and other sorts of things that shouldn't be in the landfills, right? I, I think that regenerative aspect um, is really big right now. It, it's, it's huge. No, nothing that we take in ever goes into a landfill. And that's part of our certification standards. It's awesome. And, and it takes me back, Father Jay, when I was first interviewing for the job at Connecting for Good, um, finally, I can see through, I had a platform that talked about four outcome areas. Um, you'll be familiar with them because they kind of resound with what our former mayor and I would say our current mayor believes in, but they are um, education, employment, economic impact, and the environment. And for, for my four years here, we've been pretty good on education, employment, and economic impact. But the environment was never something that we could lay claim to as Connecting for Good other than through partnerships. Well, now that is just as big of an outcome as any of the other three. And it, it's also providing a nice pathway to financial sustainability because we can turn broken down electronic components into um, a revenue stream for uh, with you know downstream vendors who are also certified for environmental responsibility. I think that's so important, Tom, because I, I always tell people at Reconciliation Services that yesterday's fundraising model is not going to fuel today and tomorrow's innovation, and and it's certainly not going to solve the social problems as complex as they are. 
Yeah. You know, I want to jump in a little bit on the personal level um, because I'd love it if you would tell me about why you chose to dedicate your life and your leadership after 22 years at Hallmark to this cause of digital inclusion. Well, um, I got to know Steve Jobs' uh, philosophies of innovation a lot when I was working at Hallmark. I was the innovation director. And he talks about how for dots to connect in your future, you have to trust, you have to follow your heart, you have to know you're doing the right things. And the experience I had at Hallmark showed me that technology that enhances products, um, you know, for older adults in particular who are less comfortable, they actually loved being able to open up a card and and hear a few bars of What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Or I remember the first time I opened one of those things, Tom, it was like, what's going, this is amazing. And then, you know, my yeah. kids' grandparents recorded themselves telling, right. uh, you know, a Christmas story and sent it to the kids. It was brilliant stuff yeah. you guys were doing. So for me, all of a sudden I realized how technology could be an empowering tool uh, for people who otherwise, you know, thought differently about the way they connect with people. Mm -hmm. And what I, I had an opportunity, I left Hallmark in 2012 to go work in Southwest Florida with older adults and innovation. And that was my first foray into nonprofit. And then when I learned about Connecting for Good, it was based on someone who knew me from my Hallmark days, who saw how much opportunity there was to turn technology into a tool that could help others. And while I was very familiar with the gap in comfort level with technology among older adults, what I hadn't been aware of is, is the digital divide and how much it affects people just based on their income and their racial and social economic status. And so when I joined Connecting for Good, I was able to take a lot of the good baggage, if you will, baggage is not the right word, but a lot of the great experience I got um, go. from the brand essence of Hallmark and all the people and volunteering I did at Hallmark and, and focused on, you know, how we could do something that still has a very much of a, a business enterprise type of pathway, but it's, it's clearly about, you know, filling gaps uh, for those who have just gone without access to things that are so vital to their normal day-to-day -day livelihood. And, and that's just made it seem for me like it's not a job at all. And um, you know, I would dare say that I wouldn't feel as fulfilled as I am now had I not had the business experience, particularly at a company like Hallmark. Um, but just knowing that I can combine that experience with the ability to, to help people in a way that now has some financial sustainability is, is really exciting. Well, I mean, I commend you for uh, not only your innovative work globally at Hallmark, which is inspiring in and of itself. You could have gone to Florida and just been on the beach after a career like that. But, you know, now... It got boring after a while, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we, we won't talk about Florida, but I prefer <laughs> the mountains. But, you know, the thing is, is that you've dedicated yourself not only while you were at Hallmark, but also now after, after you retired 22 years at Hallmark to what we call social leadership and really advancing from your position of access, your position of uh, power or, you know, procurement, whatever it may be, uh, to, to advancing this particular social cause with the access and the leadership that you could bring to it, which, which is what this podcast is all about, you know, learning to lead with greater social impact from wherever we are. 
So I always end every podcast with this question, and it's really something I'd love for you to just sort of get very personal with us, but what advice would you give to leaders still in the corporate world who wanna make a greater social impact? Uh, it's something that I continue to evolve in my learning about, but uh, the advice that I've been able to give to a few people who have contacted me since I've left uh, is what I shared just a few minutes ago. Uh, you have to know something that's driving you in your heart. Um, I think it, it can't um, easily be something that you just make up. Um, you, you have to look at what your, what your life's pathway has put you in contact with. Um, you know, going back to Steve Jobs, you know, he took, um, um, oh gosh, what am I talking about? He, he took a class on um, penmanship that you know uh, ultimately led him to create new different, new and different fonts yeah. for, for Mac uh, computers. So, for me, you know, having had the experience that I had is something I I drew from in a really positive way. And so, I would tell people just just follow your heart based on the experiences that you've had that feel authentically part of who you are. Um, because the, the one thing that can be sniffed out really easily in the nonprofit world and maybe less easily in the business world, um, you have to be authentic in what you're doing and the people that you're, you're working with. You, you can't cover it up with, you know, a profit margin. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, and it, it really comes through particularly at the level of the staffing and volunteers and then the, you know, the, the people that you're working with, whether you call them clients, customers, or, or whatnot, um, I will just summarize it in this one phrase, which I know you're familiar with because it's it's part of revealing strength, um, and that has to do with, with walking with people, um, right. doing things with people, not doing things for people. And um, if, you, if you can approach a nonprofit initiative from that perspective that you're just you're on a journey and you're joining hands with people. You're not there to do something that will save them. Um, I think that approach will, will serve anyone really well who wants to go into nonprofit work. Well, I love what you've said that if, uh, you know, we're trying to actually help people who aren't nonprofit leaders begin to think like social venturers, begin to think like people who are working for passion-driven, purpose-driven uh, organizations. Um, but I love what you said about sort of finding your natural passion, you know, going deep and really understanding it, being as authentic as you can. And when you said that, I thought about just, you know, just be real about it. Millennials in particular are wanting to work for companies that go beyond the product, you know. And so these issues of being a social leader really have to do with retention and recruitment and employee engagement, as well as the social leadership in the community. And I love that you did that at Hallmark. I love that after Hallmark, you've dedicated yourself to doing the same thing as a nonprofit leader. So um, if you are ever in the area, come by and let's keep talking about this because I know that you could talk about this issue all day long. You're super yeah. passionate about it, Tom. But thank you so much for, for joining us today. Tell our listeners uh, how they can connect with you and, and how they can help Tom. Uh, great. Well, our website is uh, has been displayed. There it is, connectingforgood.org. 
Um, and you can email us, info at connectingforgood.org. Uh, check out our Facebook page and our Twitter feed, which is at ConnectingKC. Uh, and uh, Father Justin, I just want to thank you. Um, you understand so many of the principles that we've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. The idea of, of doing things at the same level as any strong business would do. Um, if you provide quality service to people and you're treating them as your, um, your friends and you're walking with them, um, it's just it's all about being authentic and doing things with quality then, you know, I think you're going to achieve the outcomes that you need and you'll be able to make sure you have some sustainability to it. And I've learned that from what you've been doing at Reconciliation Services. And I know that you also agree we both have learning curves that we're continuing to go up as, we, as we see ways to, to keep going. And uh, I just appreciate having the opportunity to, to spend this time with you and, and to be part of of what you're doing and what we're working on together in, in Kansas City. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. I will never forget uh, when Connecting for Good was just getting off the ground that we actually had you guys here in Reconciliation Services. I won't say that the offices were amazing. I'm pretty sure you were in, <laughs> were in our old basement. But, you know, the services that you provided and the education and the digital literacy work and the access to tech and software uh, it was fantastic. We were glad to play just the smallest part in the incubation of what I think is a really important organization for our region who's lifting up things that uh, we need to be talking about, especially now during COVID on a national level. So Tom, hang with me for a minute. Thank you again so much for being with us today. All right. Thanks again. All right. Well, thanks again for listening today. If you like today's podcast, uh, I have a favor to ask of you. Please follow the podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will really help us share the show with more people. Make sure that you smash the like button, uh, share it out on social, and hit the little bell on YouTube so that you can also tune in to watch uh, the show live on Reconciliation Services Facebook page. We broadcast every Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Central. Lastly, if you like today's show and you want to learn how to lead with greater social impact, remember to visit thesocialleader.org, sign up to find out more about our new e-course called The Social Leader Essentials, which is launching very soon. Uh, answer a few short questions online and then one of our team members is going to reach out to you to see if the course is right for you. So until next time, learn to lead with greater social impact. See you then. Nathaniel Miles was a good man.